When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Cattle Station Classroom Podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So, it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land, and business. So let's get into it. In this episode, I'm chatting with Rory and Christy to Pledge, who own Kadari Station on the West Pilbara Coast. Kadari is a bit over 300,000 acres, and I started our chat by asking about their average annual rainfall. It's about 11 inches annual average, but that can vary a lot from, from anywhere from, from 2 to 16. Okay, so 11 inches, we're looking at 275 mil? About that, 270, yep. 275. Five. And what market are you targeting? So we target uh, live export and um, and local feedlot market and also send a lot to local abattoirs. Okay, so you've got, yeah, so not just live export, but a fair bit of your cattle going to the domestic market yeah, as well for yeah. local consumption. Yeah, when I say local, sorry, it's, it's, it's over a thousand k's to the local market down south. Yes, yeah, but still within, within Australia. Yeah. All right, so first section on the sticky beak is country. So talk to me about the seasons out here on Kadari. We don't really have a proper wet season per se. We, it can rain anywhere from between December and July, uh, with the main months being um, January to March and then May, June, but um, there's no designated wet season. It, it, it can We can get a lot of rain, in, say, in February, then a lot in May, or we can get none none in any of those months. Uh, or sometimes we get winter rain, sometimes summer rain. It, it's, it varies from year to year. What do you prefer, summer or winter rain? Um, both is good, but, um, yeah, I'm just happy. To, when we get rain, I'm just very happy here. Is yeah. one more effective than the other? Some rain will probably grow more grass than, say, big rain in June. But having said that, if you get four inches in, in, in March or, so, say, February, it'll burn off pretty quick. Where if you get four inches in, in, in May or June, it'll do a lot more because it's cooler. Okay. So when you say it will burn off pretty quick, what do you mean by that? Do you actually mean like with a fire or? No, nah, with a with heat. Oh, okay. So yeah. it will um, so day time, die quicker. Yeah, die quicker. It'll grow It'll grow a lot more. But, but say, you need you need a lot of rain in the summer to get to get the um, grass up and going, but because it's warmer, it'll grow a lot more bulk, I guess. But um, in winter rain, you generally don't get as much. But two or three inches in, in May or June will, will get you, will, will give you, will get you a bit of growth there. Where in summertime, it's because it's forty-five plus every day. It's it'll um, the heat will, will, will evaporate it very quickly. Really, yeah, knock it about. All right. So if you don't have a defined wet season. Uh, or reliable sort of rainfall dates. Are you able to use green dates or key dates in your management decisions? If we haven't had rain by sort of end of March, you can pretty well say that the summer rain's buggered, sort of mid, mid to late March. So then about middle of April, we'll get into mustering, pull all the wieners off um, and send them down to the farms down south because you get a pretty reliable wet season down there during the winter. So you get and, and, and you always take the cattle to the feed, not feed to the cattle. So... 
send the wieners down there where you've got more feed options. Um, and that'll be like, but because we always get a chance for winter rain, so we don't go too hard then. If we've still got plenty of dry feed, it's, it's, it's still pretty right. And then, um, and then if, it, if you happen to sneak a bit of winter rain, then, then everything will be fine. So you've just reminded me, you are the first person we've had on this station sticky bit series that actually has blocks down south. Everybody else so far has just had the stations up north or the stations where they are. So that obviously, while we're going to talk about Kadari today and your management um, and how it works here, obviously having farms down south, just north of Perth, makes a huge impact on an influence on the decisions you make up here. Yeah, definitely. It's a wonderful management tool. Um, you can use, because you we can run up to 1,500 wieners down there um, and you do get a pretty reliable wet season anywhere from May to September. It rains down there. Sometimes it might be a bit less, but we always get some sort of rain. Um, we've got tag, uh, tagasaski, which is a, um, a bush that cattle can eat um, and we've got perennial grasses plus your annual grasses, so it um, works really well. Yeah, And obviously you, if you sell a lighter, if you've got a lot, um, um, lot, if you need send more cattle down there, you just sell more down there, so you can make room. But otherwise, you you can it gives the opportunity to still instead of selling instead of having to sell light wieners, you can grow them out to to a saleable animal. And over the last couple of years, especially with drought here, Absolutely. we've been able to send our young stock there and be able and we're closer to other options like nuts and hay. Yeah. So that's been. Um, you know, financially, that's been easier to deal with those decisions and those things that we've had to do, isn't it? Absolutely. As, as yeah. in looking after those younger cattle yeah. on the farms. Helps. It helps make our business more viable, especially in dry times. So essentially, you can, uh, if you, if you've not had a good summer rainfall, you know that you you do have that reliable rainfall and feed sources down south. You can send things down. Yep. If you do get. Um, Winter rainfall, you know, it's sort of a bonus. Um, but yeah, it is a really good like risk management strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. Okay. So, what are the feed sources out here on Kadari? Is it, um, what, are, what have we got? I guess, I suppose we'll start with heads down. What are they grazing off the ground? So, they've got a fair few different types of perennial grasses. The main ones are buffalo grass, Mitchell, ribbon, uh, Robin Plains grass, Spinifex. They're kind of like your main perennial grasses. There are a few more, but they're your most prevalent ones. What's the best one to graze? I think they're all pretty good. They've all got their own advantages. So it's, you it's have, good they have diversity. Yeah, it's a well. good diversity, yeah. There's not like a monoculture of any one of them. And Spinifex is obviously a good good drought tucker. But buffalo grass is good too because it's on the, prevalent in the sandy country and it'll be, you know, it takes a couple of inches of rain to get that going. Now, buffalo grass isn't a native. Do you, how did it get to this part of the world? Was that before, like, the government – because I know it's quite hard if people want to grow buffalo now. Uh, you've got to put in all your permits and whatnot. But I think, like, some just got around back in the day. And Yeah. I think it's, it's pretty – it's spread um, naturally around here. I don't think it was much, to my to my knowledge, yeah, it was no. spread, spread by um, – Just thinking half your yeah. luck. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that would love to have some buffalo on their place. Uh, what about top feed? Are they grazing anything? Yep, there's um, a few different types of salt bushes um, and a couple of other bushes which I'm not sure of their names, but uh, one's current bush, I think it is. Not sure what the proper name for it is, but that's pretty good. And salt bushes are really good. Um, Carrara bush, Bardi bush, um, they they will um, eat snakewood, but it's bloody dry. You know, if they're eating snakewood, you know it's bloody dry if they're eating that. Yeah, but there's, it's good to have that browse species because... Um, same thing in, a, in dry times. If you lighten off uh, those those brow species, you'll keep your cows going. And what about your soil types? Like, do your pastures or your feed sources change depending on what? Do you have different land systems on Kadari? Yes, yeah, there's a few different land systems. Um, quite, there's quite a lot of, um, I call it crap old country, but you're sort of cracking clays, I suppose. Um, that'll 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 grow you a lot of your Mitchell grass and your Roman Plains grasses, ribbon grasses, that sort of stuff. It take, takes a fair bit of rain to get that up and going, but once once it's proper wet, it, it holds the moisture. There's still some of that country still green now. Uh, if you have a look, good look, close look, um, and then you've got your sandier sort of countries, and that grows your spinifex and your buffalo grasses and your woolly butts and sort of that sort of stuff. 
When you first came to Kadari, uh, it had been run as an outstation uh, for many years. Before that, a sheep property. So you had a lot of sheep fences, um, which were um, degraded, I suppose you'd say, or, or yeah. had fallen down. When you started making your own paddocks, were you fencing off by country type or just where existing fence lines were? Do you have a variety of country types in your paddocks? It varied a bit. We did – we um – did fence a little bit the country top, I suppose, and we did follow some of the old fence lines. Um, <clears throat> but we did do a lot of fencing where just, just I suppose, been, living over the years, you sort of work out what's a good place for a paddock and how it's going to work for mustering and water-wise, feed-wise. Um, yeah, so that's – and the ease of mustering. And um, so we've sort of done done a fair bit of that. Yeah, we've, we've put um, – last uh, this year we've put in about – we've made two new big paddocks, about 45 k's of fencing. And so are they, would you say the paddocks are of similar country type or you get that mixture yeah, across them? Yeah, it's got them? a good, good mixture in, in both paddocks, yeah. So what are the grazing strategies that you employ or how have they changed over time here? Um, so traditionally it was, it was, well, I suppose we've started at Mandora over 20 years. The old man and my brother have been doing rotational grazing for over 20 years in various places, especially in Bajandara, but... Um, here we've sort of um, we've just been doing two paddock rotations. We've started that this year, and we've just put in another two of those two new big paddocks I talked about. We're just um, just starting our rotation now, and out to the west towards the Gulf, we've put in a heap of dams out there. So it's sort of um, those dams are dug; they're not permanent. They only last for three to four months. So when they fill up, all the cattle go out to those dams, and um, then we shut the man-made waters off. And when they're close to being to drying up, we turn the man-made waters back on. So it's sort of like a natural um, road, sort of spelling the country, if you know what I mean. So yeah, where the, where, where getting the, them to follow the water. Yeah, getting them to follow the water. So, so not just always grazing at the man-made points. So they, so that that country has a rest as well. And so, yeah, so can you tell me a bit more about the idea behind that? Why the choice to go to some sort of rotational grazing rather than just set stock or open up the whole place and let them? Um, well, that's it's. I mean, it's just it's, it's it's great. It's great if you can do it to have any, any sort of rest. Resting country is really good. Um, it it allows all your grasses and your bush to regenerate and all that sort of thing. But um, I, this last three or four years of drought has really, um, or dry years has really pushed that now because you, you in those dry years it wasn't like no rain. We did get some rain, but. The, the as fast you have the rain and as fast as the grass wants to grow the cattle just chew it off um, whereas and I know it's in the holding paddocks and, and areas where where there was um, rest it could grow a bit into a substantial plant so so by this um, I mean it's probably not ideal but some sort of rest will and I, and I, and I believe and, and also work, it'll work good with our with our um, rainfall patterns too, because sometimes you can um, get no rain, but sometimes you can have a, a good summer rain and, and, and a winter rain. So, so while the paddock's been rested for six months, there's a good chance it'll get some sort of rain, which will allow it to rejuvenate. So essentially, while we're in an extensive grazing system, so that you know not very many animals relative to the the space, you're controlling and. I'd say intensifying, but I suppose I use that word loosely because it's still quite extensive, but controlling the grazing over particular periods or particular areas of country rather than just letting them have free range at whatever they want in order to allow other species to to yeah. you know, get their roots down and really yeah. start growing again. Yeah. 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 Before this, did you have any spelling strategies for country or was it, were you just unable to well, because of a lack of infrastructure? That's lack of infrastructure, I suppose, and – um this country, if you do get a, a rainfall event, it does, like there is gill guys and just natural water holes or hold water for up to four to four or five weeks. So it does, the country does get a bit of a bit of a rest anyway, um, in a good wet season because, um, the cattle spread out because there's so much surface water around. But, but you really notice it in those dry years when you, when you're stocked accordingly, you know, if you've had a good run of good years and you get a dry year, you really notice it because you, the, your country doesn't get a rest, obviously, because just, the cattle don't get that spread. Yeah, so they just really want to yeah. hang, stay close to those yeah. man-made waters. Yeah. What about you guys have been here 
12 years, I think, uh, but it's been in the family and run as an outstation a little longer. What kind of rangeland monitoring do you guys do? Do you do, I know you'd have, um, do you have a warm site like what the, yeah. the deep ones? Yeah, we've got about half a dozen warm sites, I think. Yep. And we've put it in a few of our own. We were just banging the couple of pickets in and just taking the picture sort of thing. So it's, that's about as technical as we've got so far. But yeah, going forward, we'll probably do some sort of um, satellite imagery as well and something along those lines. So how did you pick where you banged your own pickets in and how often are you taking pictures? Taking pictures probably, you know, a few months after a rainfall event, just waiting for the, wait for the grass to hay off. Not really. We took pictures late last year as well. We put those pickets in That's and right. the initial photo was of it at, at pretty much at its worst mm. and then several months later once we'd had Yep. Some decent rain yep. there, yep. so inch plus. Yep. We went back there and took more photos and, you know, yeah, you, you hardly recognise those yeah. areas, yep. those spots. Yep. How, what do you do with the pictures once you take them? Do they just get, like, buried in the computer somewhere or do you, like, print them off or they put in a special uh, folder or print it off in an album? They need to be printed off, but they're still on my phone and iPad at the moment. Well, that's all right. At least they're still there. <laughs> you can still see them. And how many how many? Spots did you pick? Uh, about, about half a dozen. Five, yeah, yeah, four or five, six. Mm-hmm. And then I just we just chose areas that, um, like obviously you're not going to pick a barren flat because it's never going to without mechanical intervention it's not going to. But so I sort of we sort of picked areas that I knew from memory that had grass and there was sort of dead perennial grass stumps there. So that's sort of how we did it. Right? So it was, yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd have you'd have like a you know a tree or something that was. Um, you know, when you look back at that photo, you know, uh, compare comparing the shot, and there's no way you can confuse that spot because mm-hmm. of a tree or something particular in that spot in that area. Yeah, it could help you really know situate that. yourself like a landmark, yeah, a very exactly. distinctive landmark. Yep. All right. So, have you? Uh, I will ask you about mechanical intervention in just a moment, but I just want to ask also to build more of a picture. Uh, about what's impacted your landscape and the and the feed base. Do you have any issues with feral pests? Not a huge amount. There are a few dogs coming around at the moment. We had a we had a dog area here for a couple of years, and um, that's when it was dry because we had a few calves come through with bite, obviously a few bite marks. But um, and that cleaned them out. But then this year with the rain, they've all there's a lot of tracks around again. So yeah. um, as as yet, haven't seen any impact on calves, but because um, everything's fat and happy, but. Um, Going but our land systems don't allow for a huge build-up in numbers, generally speaking, anyway. There's not a lot of hiding spots and, you know, water water in ranges and that kind of thing. We just don't have that yeah. landscape. So the opportunity for them to live and breed up in bigger numbers and then affect our cattle is, is lower. It's, it's still there, but it's just lower. Does that go the same for, say, like camels, donkeys, horses, or even like wallabies and roos? There's not enough numbers to really no. impact your feed sources. No, it's just, it's just sort of because, as Christy said, there's, they're easier to control because we don't have that breakaway country or hills or anything, so you can control the dogs a lot easier. And and it's all fenced, so we don't have any donkeys or um, roos to date. Haven't really been too much of a problem. Half your luck. It's yeah. great to hear. So regeneration and any interventions you've had. What have you been doing in the time you've been here to try and? improve the landscape condition well it's when we first came here the place um had had a bit of a rest anyway because it a lot of the waters were broken down there was sort of was sort of heavily stocked in some areas where waters were going and then other areas there hadn't been waters going for 20 years or more so um so it was pretty good in that respect um and we just got we got a heap of waters going and um had good seasons and 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 so it was we're going along pretty tickety-boo there for a while until this last few years and that's when it's made us realise that, you know, um, um, we need to change our strategies when it comes to grazing. It's probably, um, we got here, the country was good, it, it was raining um, and then it stopped raining so that that's what, I suppose, uh, um, when it rains anyone can be a good good um, grass manager but when it stops raining that's, that's when you need to buddy. Yeah, that's when you learn. That's exactly what Christy said in her episode. There's like exact words. So would you describe this country as, you know, is it fragile or is it more robust, do you think? Robust, I'd I say. I think it's pretty robust. Yeah. Yeah. 
But okay. it, our future goals as far as regeneration are, um, and Rory's already made a start in some local areas um, with a interve- machine intervention on those hard baked flats, sort of clay panty areas. He sort of started to scratch them up a bit and encourage the um, surface. Yeah. 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 So you can really see that even after, even in the last few months watching the country come back after such dry years, you can see where there's been any sort of break and disturbance on, the, on those hard flats where where that's been is there's there's plants growing there and that's so that obviously that's just such great proof um, of ha- the benefits of that so that's something that we'll be looking to do in the future for sure. It's interesting that I, I understand like one school of thought is you know you just need to spell country rest country for it to come back but there are certain country types and it, it could have arrived at that point by any means and and so many different ways that you do need a mechanical intervention. You know, even if you lock up a clay pan and fence it off for 30 years, it might not look different in 30 years' time. You actually Mm. need to physically break up that crust, whether it's – I think in our situation, because we are a coastal property, it's very flat, you know, it is undulating in areas, but it's – this. you know, water is running off. Generally speaking, uh, and I'm, I don't, clay pans aren't man-made. They must be there for a reason. I'm not sure, but for us to go and um, scratch a few up, put some, you know, rippers in and um, help grass grow, of course, we're never going to be able to do it completely. So, yeah, it's going to be a positive to cover some ground up. Uh, you know, it's, it'll be an ongoing, very long-term project, that one. As I guess all land, any in, any intervention is being a coastal property. Do you find wind? Um, I, let's be honest, I don't know a lot about how wind works, whether you're in the desert or on the coast. But do you get big coastal winds that may cause erosion or definitely? Yeah, especially last year. Wasn't last year was probably the, we had two dry years, and last year was even drier. We thought after 2019, I hope we don't have another year like this again, and. 2020 was even worse, but bloody, um, you know, so much dust and stuff blowing around, and you know, your winds come up, which you think was just the normal winds, but then there's just so much dust blowing around, you think, shit, is there ever any, anything ever going to grow again? You think, shit, is any grass seed going to be left in the place? But it's amazing how, how, um, how it does come back. But yeah, because a lot of sand, you, 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 you look, look, we'll go away for, we'll go away, say, for a couple of days somewhere and come back, and then and on our driveway, even you, you can see, you never tell when there's been a big wind, because, it's like the, it's just big sand ridges have blown across the road. So you mentioned you've been doing some scratching, so that's a mechanical intervention um, on some clay pan country. Is there anything else you're doing, like with woboys or water ponding or um, any erosion control? And do you have many waterways that run through the property? No, not really. There is, I mean, the water does shed in this country, as 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 cricket said, but because it's pretty flat, it's not really a major issue. We do we have put in a lot of woboys, but. But it's mainly on the on the roads because where your where your roads and you they do obviously your water starts running down the road and the more the water starts running the quicker it flows and the more dirt it takes with it. So we've put wall boys in mainly on the on the roads to stop water eroding where our roads are and and draining the country, I suppose in that in that respect. So we have put a lot of wall boys in along roads and that and that's helping a lot just to to stop the erosion on the roads anyway to make that makes it worse. So let's move on to the infrastructure section. Tell me about your fences here. So, so when you came, sheep. What did a sheep fence look like? They were probably they would have been from Reno sheep, so they weren't very high. Only probably a couple of foot, two and a half foot high. So I mean, can't remember how. Is that just high barbed wire or no, no, just all plain, plain wire? Probably, okay. five, probably five to seven plain wires. Oh wow, and not very high, so that would they'd be quite close together. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, a lot of flat pickets. There was a lot of um, original snakewood fence dock posts. Yeah, lots of um, and the old original ones. And so, have you had to for most of the fences you've got standing today? Have you guys either put them back up or changed them over yourselves or put, put them in new? Haven't put any back up. We've just either bulldozed or physically rolled up a lot of the old sheep fencing. Still well, got a fair bit like to go. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> and so, what are you choosing to do when you put in your new fences? What kind of wires and how many strands? How far um, apart? Mostly barb. Um, four barb in pressure areas and, um, and, and we're not hugely stocked here. So in non-pressure areas, three barb. And so what's the, enough. what do you count as a pressure area and why the extra? Um, strand? so, so holding paddocks or areas around close to waters. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then uh, with this new paddock, paddock we've put in the the middle section, it'll run. It's going to run quite a lot of cows in there. So we've we've put in two barb, two two plane electric, mm-hmm. just to, because um, doing the initial change over there's a lot of cows that want to go back to their home country. So we've put that hot wire and a couple of hot wires in there just to give them a good boot so they can't can't push through. Now I can understand you say the uh, holding paddocks are a, are a higher pressure area because you're holding a mob of cattle that in in a space for a certain period of time. Why, though, is a water point or around a water point in a high-pressure area? Is that like a water yard where they're trapped in or no, usually where they come into water? just where they come into water. Um, and, like, you, you could be bulls fighting or any of that sort of – there's more cattle around there. So if, if a wire breaks, at least you've got more wires back there to up. back up. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. And so you've got you've got pickets and spaces or droppers, depending droppers. on what part of the world we're in. Yeah. A dropper, so you, yeah, is yeah. it like a, what, a picket, a dropper, so a picket, picket, and then uh, two, yeah, picket, two droppers, and a picket. Yep. And some areas we've even just got like seven or ten meter spacings just for your pickets with no droppers. Yep. Yeah. What about waters? What's your um, setup here? Um, mostly pipeline. I think we've only got one bore that supplies one water because uh, our our water's either hard to find or really salty. So if most of our bores supply. Um, a pipeline where they'll be watering two two waters or more. Our main bores waters eleven tanks. Wow, yeah. that is a hard working bore that is it earning is. its keep. It is. Yeah, that so is. Um, that must be like something that you like. That's like your when you're in the safety deposit box, you want to have like security guards around yeah. that bore. It broke that down is- on Christmas Eve once. We all stopped and went to – it was 45 or 48 mm. or something. I was six months pregnant and yeah. Rory, Cobb and I were all out there pulling this bore and with me Three with days. my belly and Rory mm. and Cobb on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Christmas That's Day. how important this bore is. I mean, Eve, every bore is important, but that, that one in Well, particular. watering 11, 11 tanks, how many – and, you know, well, depending obviously on the year and your st- and what what so, numbers you're carrying. At the but, time, I think it was 2,000. So about so the, you can water up to three, uh, two, two and a half thousand head. When, when, wow, when, that is yeah. a very impressive bore. Yeah. So <laughs> there's, there's obviously a backup bore and backup it, pump, but when it breaks down, obviously all hell breaks loose, as Christy said, you Everything stops and yeah, it's fixed. Yeah, so you've got that bore, and so you've got a few other bores around the place that, and so they all feed off to multiple, yep. multiple tanks. Yeah. And you're running pipeline. What um, what size poly are you Mostly running? Mostly sixty three. We have got um on that on that big one. When we bought the place, it did have a lot of PVC pipe, which used to blow out all the time, and um, so we replaced a lot of that with seventy five mil. Yeah, so that um, just to get that initial bulk um, water down the line, if it yeah, reduces the head pressure. And do you use any um, like remote water monitoring or anything like that? Yeah, we've been using um, FarmBot for a couple of years now. That works really well. Not every water, but like at the end of the pipelines, so um, uh, they you know that's you know you still I mean you still got to do your bore runs, but at least you can check it every day and you, you know there's a drama because that water's not getting to. If the water's not getting to the end of one, you know there's a drama somewhere. And when we go away, it's such a, a reassurance to be able to access information about how the how the water the waters are when we're not here. If we're you know, and it just gives the person that's here caretaking um, that extra reassurance as well. It um it did take me a while to figure out a while ago why people didn't have them on every water point and just at the end of a pipeline. So just in case anyone's listening and they didn't pick up on that. So if, if you've got water at the end of your pipeline, it means every tank before it should be full as well because you fill up a tank <laughs> and then you fill up the next one and it kind of goes in that order. So in theory, if the one at the very end is going well, then um, they should all be going well. I want to ask you about the – so is everywhere – so it's all tanks. I know you've got some solars as well, do you? The every bore solar, yeah. So every bore is solar. Okay, so there's nothing with a that you need to go drop diesel into. Oh well, the, like the main can't... the main bore's got a um, diesel generator. It's got a. Oh, big, is that big... that one near the homestead yards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at night time we use a generator pump. Mm-hmm. When and then um, probably well, it depends on the season, but we haven't had to use it so far because the dam's still got water in. But pretty shortly when it warms up, we'll be starting that at night time. Yep. And what about your – so everywhere else is tank. Uh, so you said you've got a few dams. Any, like, turkeys' nests that run into troughs or anything like that? Nah, like, And do the nah. cattle water directly from the dams? Yep. 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 So how do you go with your maintenance of your dams? What's the strategy uh, there? There's not really any strategy. They just go in and 
drinking. Um, yeah, eventually we should we probably put some uh, like a, a, a pipe into them so that, so at least they've got a silk trap. But um, but this this country we, we've we've never there's never been any um, cattle bogging and dams I suppose because because they're only they're only um, hold water for three or four months so. It's not like in, uh, when there's a drought, there's, there's muddy water in the bottom of the dam and then trying to get a drink. Yeah, it's, yeah. It works pretty good. So this is good. I'm learning things. And this is, I guess, the point of the station Sticky Beak is that a dam in one area is not the same as a dam in another part of the country. And so no. this is what I have so much – I enjoy so much asking these questions to people because here I'm thinking, oh, like, you know um, – yeah, like, you know, one idea might be you should fence off all dams and rah, rah, you know, that might be something that's been pushed in the idea of this station Sticky Beak series is to show that different things work in different areas differently and whatnot. So, um, yeah. yeah, so you've got your dams, you you build yours. Is that, when you say they only last for three or four months, is that because of the rain that they can, ca- like the amount of rain you're getting or have you just not dug them deep so you've only dug yeah. them to a depth where they'll only hold that? And yeah. did you specifically yeah. choose, say, I only yeah. want to dig it this deep so it only holds as much water? Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. why why the choice to have only a couple months worth of water rather than try and save enough for the next three years? Well, it's probably a cost thing. It would have doubled the cost to, to dig it dig it deep. And um, also, once you get out towards the coast, if you dig too deep, um, you, it's possible. Is it possible you can hit salt water? And obviously, then you've hit salt water, you bugger just bulldoze a dam in and start again. So so um, that's that's probably a major factor. Yeah. Um, and I'd really want that. I didn't. I didn't really want to dig the dam at all. I mean, they'll last. Say from a good. If they're from when I say three or four months, that's from when they're full. But if it keeps raining, obviously they'll keep watering. Top up, yeah. But um, if you're going to dig a, a dam, it's going to last a long time, semi permanent. Then that's when you have to fence it off, and you got to put a put a put a um, a solar pump there, a windmill to pump out of it in the tank and a trough, and that sort of for our way that defeated the purpose because where I've put them is a long way from. Um, it, it, it's a long way from your from your bore run, and and, it, and and rather than having you don't have to maintain a dam as such, like a uh, check it like a bore uh, or a trough or a tank. Um, it's just you just set one time the, co- the expense of putting it in once it's in, it's in, and you just check it. Um, and they're there every couple of weeks, yeah. Assisting with um, grazing pressure, yeah, as yeah. opposed to. Yeah, what you're talking as about. a main, yeah, rather yeah. than a main full time water, water source. So, do you have so do you ever have to go in and like when it's dried up, like do a, you know, clean them out and do all that kind of stuff? Or there were some older ones here, which which what gave me the idea, and I've they were put in in the 1950s, and they were pretty silted up pretty bad. So I've dug a couple of them out, um, but these these the new ones I've put in are further out towards the coast where there's a lot of really good country, and and. Um, Trying to trying to get water out there, you'd have to extend the pipeline that that main bore, and that's 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 a big cost, and it's already under pressure anyway. So trying to put more waters on it was, um, unless you unless you've got a big checkbook, it's um it's pretty hard. So that that was the the cheapest and most efficient option I thought anyway. Putting dams in, you don't have to you don't have to check them um, every couple of days. It's once they're in, they're in. The cattle go out there, and when they dry up, the cattle come back. Yeah, you mentioned something just before about uh, maybe putting in a pipeline at some point for silt. I've, I haven't heard of that before. Oh, what what so, is? How does so, that work? So, so, so a silt trap. So you got your main dam, and then you put in like a big pipe into the dam, mm-hmm. and then you dig a like a, like a little small hole. So when the water fills up, it doesn't fill directly into the dam. It fills your silt trap, and that goes down your big pipe into the dam. So, so, so the way the dams are dug at the moment, every time it rains. The water flows into the dam, but it'll take a bit of silt with it. So, mm-hmm. so, so, say every year it might be a couple of inches shallower, if you know what I mean, because that silt washes washes in there. I'm going to need to see a picture of this because, in my mind, I like I kind of get it, but I I'm one of those yeah. people where sometimes you actually have to go and show me yeah. and point the things out. But I'm hoping people listening <laughs> will get it. Yeah. But we all know, yeah, if I can get it, anyone can get it. So I've got half of it there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, what about your yards? Oh, actually, first, before we go on to yards, sorry, waters. So, obviously, again, um, there's many um, barriers to, to 
uh, or limitations, but how far apart are you putting your waters at the moment? Uh, they're about five to seven k's apart. And is that uh, just, is that like a financial pretty, constraint or yeah, that's just financial what you, do you find your cattle, they will walk out? It is a financial thing, but also this country, I think it's all the countries different. Like Mandora, where we came, where, where I came from originally, um, the waters are only four k's apart up there because it's, it's, um, it's hard to explain, but it, it, it's much higher rainfall and you, and you, and you the country, country is much higher carrying capacity. So you, Having your waters four k's apart up there is, works really well. We're down here; it's it's a bit more sparse, a bit less rainfall. You, you get more bang for your buck, I think, for having your waters a bit further apart. Unless you're going to put in like extensive, extensive, um, like extensive cell grazing system or something along those lines, you'd probably go a bit closer together. But just for what we do, I reckon that's that, about that five k mark's pretty good. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, heading on to yards, uh, what? Tell me about your yard designs and what you look for when you're building a set of yards. Um, so we, we're panel free here now, but when we first came here, we used to build four panel yards. <clears throat> and oh, I just, we just worked on a pretty simple design, really. Just what every time we build a panel yard, it sort of get a bit better. And then we worked on, it was just a buddy, just a ba- basic bit of a curved race and a few let up yards into that. And then, um, yeah, so that's where we put our main homestead yards is. I suppose we worked out over the years where the best spot to put it was, and um, there's only all the basically most of the most of the mussels come back to the home yards, and there's two mussels into into the out another set further out towards the Gulf. So it's all yeah, it's pretty pretty good like that. So is there anything about your yards, like is there anything that you're? I just want to get some like uh, more of your perspectives. Like, do you like like a big backyard or a long race that can hold ten cows deep, or a race that only holds two cows deep, or um, oh, I think you, you don't want to race too long, but it's got to be long, long enough to hold, hold you know, a good, good at least four cows, I reckon. So when you're botching or bang tailing something, you can you can get a few in there at least. Yeah, four, four to six, I suppose. Yeah, six cows. You get a flow. Yeah. For, you know, they've yeah. got to be able to feed up in there. And yeah. Feel yeah. like they've got bit somewhere of a curve to go. In it. I like a bit of a curve because they come around better. But this is just what I what, what I think works anyway. And is it just steel? Do you have any weld mesh, or is it steel? Um, mostly steel. There is some weld mesh. I don't really like weld mesh, but um, got to you know, use what you, you've got at the time. Yeah, what you got at the time, you just got to use what you got. And I just realised when we were talking about waters, I didn't ask you. I know you've got some traps around your waters here. Do you? Yeah. So, how do they? What kind of traps are they? And how often do you use them? Um, there was traps here when we got here. Um, we, we sort of modified them a bit, but um, they're just sort of little little trap. I suppose you'd call it a trap yard, but you don't trap them into the yard. But they're just like a little yard around a trough. But when you want to trap cattle in there, it's, it's got a, each one's got a paddock, a small paddock. So you open up the gate in the paddock, so they've got feed. So you set that like a day or two before you want to actually muster. And then um, we've got a bit of a line of them set up where you, where we we just walk them from from one water to the next, pick up the trap cattle there, and then keep on watering the next water. That sort of I'd be nice to have the whole place set up like that, but it's a bit sporadic at the moment. And so is that because you don't have any permanent surface water on – so you don't have permanent surface water on Kadari, do you? No, no. No. So is that – do you find that setting that trap a couple of days before you want to muster, that helps you just cut down on those initial chopper hours that morning because you've kind of got your coach and mob ready yeah. to go yep. and they're kind of concentrated because, again, yep. like that is – I suppose the – while there's – uh, pluses and minuses to everything. One of the advantages of not having surface water is that you can kind of yeah. control yeah. where they're watering and build yeah. these trap yards. Whereas I guess if you had lots of surface water, you could still set your traps, but yeah. you might not get as many because they've got nah. options. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be, if you had surface water, you'd probably have to use more like attractants, like lick or something, to to get your traps set up. But that certainly make it a bit more difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so so is that main advantage of trapping them. Just yeah, cutting down chopper hours. Cutting down chopper hours, and especially in dry times, um, you can you can just set your traps and and the, and the cattle aren't so springy anyway, so that you can just set your traps and um, like there's one of the here the water here close by the house where um, we we're feeding them hay three three or four times a week, and then we had good rains out to the out to the east, and um, we're just me and cricket and the kids set the trap there, and we walked them out to a paddock where there was. Well, it's good grass because it just happened to be getting a few storms, so it worked good like that. Brilliant. So let's move on to cattle then. So we've learned a bit about your country type and your infrastructure, which I think 
obviously are huge influences on how you run your cattle and what kind of cattle you run. Uh, also, we just uh, talked briefly at the beginning about what market you're aiming for. So what um, – I've got species slash breed written here, but uh, that's because sometimes it's a cattle and sheep station, but this is just cattle. Although, actually, I, I do have a um, – Cricket knows this is coming – you would say that this is a, a single, like a beef cattle enterprise. Yep. I'm going to have to disagree with you, Ori. I think this is a mixed operation and that you are running cattle and spiders. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what to do with that. But uh, I, I, if you can find a market for spiders, I yep. think you guys yep. like talk about diversification. Yep. Who needs to run sheep or crops or anything else? <laughs> Honestly, we need to find a way to. Anyone yeah. looking for spiders? Yeah. If anyone's looking for <laughs> spiders, there are plenty at Katari. Yeah, some of the crew have had a fair few stacks trying to avoid spiders. That's for sure. Yeah, there were a few moments <laughs> yesterday. I saw Joey out with a stick yesterday trying to get one off his bike. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and they're not. They're they're good quality, stocky. You know, like they're robust spiders too. They're not little yeah. weak things. You There's know, they're. Of- Bugs around from deep, they're pretty fat. Yeah, definitely. So we've just got to find a way to capitalise on that. But um, so, what breed of cattle are you running here? Uh, so we um, run droughties, drought masters. Um, that's a, well, it's, I suppose it's what the breed we've always been running for. Been running them since probably the eighties, I suppose. But um, that uh, I just think they're good, nice, quiet breed, good looking breed. Probably a bit biased, but. Um, also, you, you diversify your market with um, droughties. Yeah, you can you can go into the local market. The feedlotters like them. Um, your, your life, your, your your exporters like them. Yeah, they're they're pretty good all round breed, I reckon. And um, and if if you're sort of aiming for that um, slaughter market as well, local slaughter market, they they work. They can they work pretty good. Um, we've experimented putting uh, but a few ultra blacks, um, but. The calves are good. The weaners good, aren't they? But but they but we bought the ultra blacks when um just when the dry time started. So poor buggers, they sort of roughed it for a while. They, um yeah, but we've we've kept we've kept some of their they've thrown a few um red calves. We've kept some of the heifers because they obviously put a bit more good bit, bit more beef on them, a bit more weight. So going forward, it'd be good to, to mix in a bit a bit of that bit of that as well. Do you find the domestic market accepts? The amount of hump and ear that you've got in a drought master versus, you know, an option to go to a Santa Gertrudis with just a little bit less. Um, droughties don't have a lot of hump, I suppose. A flat back, flat backs is a you know, modern word in it. Um, so the, the steers and heifers generally got pretty, pretty flat backs anyway. If if we just, we probably, I suppose we probably have lower content droughties anyway. Yeah, so we sort of concentrate on that, so make sure that they've got good pink pigmentation and that sort of stuff. Tell me about your breeding and mating strategy out here. Um, so, cow, bulls room with the cows all the time. Um, we have thought about um, controlled mating, but I think I think with our wet seasons, that's probably the main reason, main hindrance. Like, if you're trying to mate cows when it's dry or whatever, so I think it's they, they, the cows cycle with the wet seasons. They cycle with the mustering. Um, our wet seasons, so not that we, we don't really have a wet season, but we can have a really good wet season or a mediocre one or a bloody dry one, so it sort of works good with – that's what works good. Well, we, we, I can confidently say our carving's up around probably 85 90%. Um, so that that's, works good for us. And, we, and we, 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 do, we do have a heifer paddock, so we, we keep our keeper heifers separate. We'll put quite often what we have now, we've put young bulls in with them so they're not being bushed out with the big big herd bulls. Ones, and then um, they'll be kept in there for 12 months and – We'll put them out there out 12 months' time once they've grown up to, to a good weight. Yeah, okay. So you are keeping them separate before you send them out with the big boys yeah. or with the boys. And also, I suppose, in this part of the country that you're in and where your block is, um, do you have much of an issue with uh, ferals and keeping out ferals, like feral cattle? No, yes. no none at all. So that no. I suppose that must also contribute because yeah. I know for some people, um, you're like, yeah, you really – that can be a real issue and that yep. might be a, a real instigator to really get into a controlled mating and try and yeah. have yep. everything very controlled but here if you're also not. No, not we've got, got some- um, boundary fence on three sides and then the ocean on one side, so it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's and there's no, as I said before, it's a big, big sort of floodplain. There's no – we don't have any rivers here as such, no breakaway country or ranges where the ferals can come out of. 
Yeah. Pretty so, sport like that. Yeah, so pretty good to be able to control any yeah. unwanted visitors, whether yeah. they be human, bovine, yeah, that's equine, right, exactly. any yeah. other species. Yeah. Once the cattle are in calf, uh, what do you, what do you do in terms of like, do you preg test? Um, do you fetal age? Do you spay cattle? How does that all work once they're kind of of age? We spay, spay for age. So once they reach 10, 11 years old, we'll spay them or web them. Um, and that's basically takes two years to get because you'll, they'll web them and then they can still carry their calf. So next year you'll, they'll have a wiener on them, take their wiener off and they'll fatten. So they'll sell them the year after that. Generally, that's how that works. Um, do you fatten them up here or do you send them south to fatten? Ah, uh, here, generally, yeah. Sometimes on a, on a dry, if it's dry here and good down the farm, we'll, we'll send them down there for a few months just to freshen up, but generally just here, yeah. Um, and so every time we muster, um, always preg test that you dry, our dry cows. That works pretty good. So if um, anything that's buddy dry and empty will we'll get sold. Yeah, but if she's – and so you don't preg test the wets, but if they are wet and empty, you know, I guess – uh, you're allowing them a grace period. Yep. Yep. yep, yep to yep. and then you, you, I'm not sure, but if it's the proper way to do it, but I just look at the udders if they you can tell by the udders if they're having multiple calves or not. If they've got a really tight udder and small teats, and and they're only very early in calf, well, that will see see you later sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. You sound that's uh, very similar to a conversation I've had with Matt Wood, and that's what he like does a lot. He can eyeball a lot of them as well, rather than needing to arm them. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, what I'd love to get your thoughts on this idea of so you're not preg testing your wet cows. You you're not expecting every wet cow to come in wet and pregnant, um, even though in a perfect world, a perfect scenario, that's that's the goal. But at the end of the day, cows are animals and individuals and not machines yeah. so um yeah how do you come to your decision on that to with how how hard or how much pressure you put on them and how do you come to um, that well they, they i think i just manage themselves i don't get too scientific about it as i said before if they're if they're big and fat and um don't look like they have many calves and they'll go on a truck at um, the moment we're yeah. finding though because we had to wean so hard last year yeah. that a lot of them are coming in dry yeah. But, and you're preg testing, you know, a bunch of them. Yeah. I don't know. What, what did you preg test this morning? I preg tested 30 this morning, but there was, there was, there's only two that weren't calf. One mm-hmm. wasn't calf, but it was, um, she was a bit older anyway, so I decided to send her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, what we're finding at the moment, yeah. aren't we? But it's ama- quite amazing, you know, with a lot of those calves we've, we've marked this town mushroom. They would have, those cows would have gotten calf December, January last year when it was, when it was a desert. So they just, Proves amazing how resilient they are. They're still getting calf. Yeah, and to have that bull with them, so whenever that opportunity does arise, yeah. a calf yeah. is better than no yeah, calf no at calf. all. Yeah, and and I oh, just, just I guess having the farms as well. We, we can anything that's out of sync will go down there, and if we will we, we, we will sell them. We have two rounds of selling, one April May, and if they're too small, then we'll we'll sell them again. You know that next round, um, sort of that September October period. Yeah, so I guess, again, I, I forgot about the farm for a moment there, but that must be a huge influence on your mating strategy as well because for some, I suppose, people that don't have that another block to send them to or another option, um, <coughs> managing out-of-season carvers can be a huge like um, human resource and financial resource drain. But here, if you've got, you know, so you say you don't have that defined wet season, so there's not a, a, a perfect time where they'll all sink. But... Here, if you do get out of season carvers, you do have another option to manage them. It's not that you're going to have yeah. to do a lot up here. You do have an option, you know, o- yeah. options. I guess that's the, that's the, the moral of the story here is that you've got, got, a, got options. Yeah. Paddock yeah. just near the yards where we can stockpile animals just like that and just hold on to them till we've got enough for a road train and then send, send them, them down to the farm. Brilliant. How important is uh, being able to preg test and or have your cattle preg tested and spayed as a management tool for you? It's a great management tool, um, especially the, like your, your cows. I, I mean, I guess uh, one I've thought of before, if, if, I, if I couldn't get the cows spayed, there'd be one option, just um, send them down to the farm, carve out and sell them down there. But op- we prefer to keep the farms open for, for wieners when, when we're sending them down there. But um, that is an option to send cows down there, but it's just... Um, it's good here to, to, to spay them and then, you, the, you know, it's, it's a good income next year. They come in nice and fat and, yeah, like a big, big fat bullock. They, it's, it's, it's sending, a, um, especially this year, they're, they're worth they're worth a fair bit of money. There were a, f- a few yeah. fat Amy's yesterday. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, it's not that long ago that cows just, your breeders just bred calves until they got old and died out in the paddock. It's, it's um, 
Yeah, so it's, it's make yeah. some yeah, able to turn them into a bit of a cash flow. That's right. Avoid the welfare issues of them yeah. getting poor and dying out yeah. in the paddock. Yeah. I was just asked, do you find that spade cattle do well? You know, going out and finishing their life off in this pad. Well, they're living yeah. life out here. You know, out here on Kadari, they know where to graze. They know what yeah. to do. So you spay them, send them back out to what they're familiar with. Whereas yeah. if you had to, I mean, they'll. I mean, down south, it's a smaller place, and there'll be abundance of feed, but. This is their home. Like they probably do yeah. a bit better in their home yeah. environment. Yeah, especially if you had a bit of rain in there. But they're generally older cows anyway. So as you said, that home environment, they're they're generally pretty fat anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and probably teached and with what's you know delectable to eat out there and teaching the other mm. cows. So not only are you getting an extra, so you're getting yes, they're hanging around for an extra year, but not getting a calf. But they're teaching everyone else. So it is kind of a there's mm. plenty of positives to it. Yeah. Well, you said she spay for age around ten or eleven. How did you come to that age? Um, if you because if you miss them and wait till they're twelve, um, sometimes you you might miss them for a year, and then all of a sudden they're fourteen or fifteen, and that's that's when you have those issues if you're trying to track them for on the other track. For I mean, so most of the time the cows are still pretty good at that age, but there's always that chance, and they bit bit older and um, can go down the track. Reduces uh, truck more trucking mortalities and all that sort of thing. Welfare issues. And on a in a good year, what is, uh, what are you weaning at? What's an average weaning weight? Uh, on a good year, we were been weaning down to pretty high this year, probably above probably one thirty. Not too many weaners below one, probably about one thirty, one forty kilos. Um, just because there's a good abundance of feed out there, and um, there's. I guess, um, and there hasn't been too many of that, that weight too either, to be honest. Most of the calves have been smaller around that, probably 60, 80 kilos. So in a good year, what is the typical management strategy for weaners once you pull them off mum? So they'll they'll go in, uh, in the yard for a while and, and uh, in a holding paddock until we'll, we'll stockpile them in there. And then um, depending on... Because well, actually, this year, like it's been an unbelievable season down south. It's a good problem to have. The, the farms actually got abundance of grass, so we actually have to sending sending a lot of weaners down there that we wouldn't normally send just to chew that grass down there. Otherwise, it'd be a, be a bloody fire hazard. Yeah, even though there's plenty of feed here. Yeah, so it's a good problem to have anyway. A lot like the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> so if they weren't having to go down south, if they do, you just set aside. Is it like your best country for them, or can it just be like medium country? Are you giving them any kind of supplements or supplementary um, feeding? No, nah, we, we we would we have been in dry years, um, but this is pretty strong country. It's pretty gutsy soil, so they they do pretty well. Um, I mean, it, if you if you buddy, you probably probably would probably should probably feed them supplements, but. Um, but in a good year, I, I just don't. Well, if they don't need extra, it, then there's an extra expense. Yeah. But definitely down the farm or, or in dry years, definitely they get um, fed um, pellets for a while till they're above 160 odd kilos before they're just released out on their own on the, on the grass. Yeah. Yeah. But but in, I mean, in dry years, we'll, we, well, last year we were weaning them, unless they uh, had umbilical cords, we were, we were weaning them pretty much. Pretty hard, yeah, to give mum that break, and then so when you've got you'd have a, a variety of size weaners from say like fifty kilos to hundred and something. Are you do you segregate? Do you like um, mm. draft them into yeah, different definitely, lines? Definitely, yeah. yeah. We've got your little tiny battle pen, which basically just a tiny calves, and they'll be they on on calf pellets, and we mix in them with molasses, good hay, and everything, and um, and we sort of do a fair bit of. Give them a whole heap of love in there. Do a bit of um, sort of oh, I don't get talk too technical, but a bit of just walk them around the yard a bit. Spend a lot of time with them. Get get them up off the, off their ground. Just walk them around. Make sure they're eating. Make sure they're drinking. Get them up. Walk them around the yard a bit. Just to sit around and sulk and sort of um, a lot of people call it de-stressing, but I just call it stockmanship or whatever you want to call it. But um, and then, um, and then you bit, but your bigger weaner, then you'll have your like next line of weaners, which obviously anything below 140, 150 kilo will be, will be on nuts in a dry year, that's for sure. Yeah. So the last, uh, bit I've got to ask you about cattle in this section is nutrition. So we've talked a little bit about the feed sources you have out here. And just then we've spoken specifically about the nutrition for early weaners. What about your regular cattle out here with your country? Um, like you said, you don't have a defined wet season, so does that mean you can't really do a different wet season lick to dry season, or nah. how does that? No, we we have fed cattle lick here before in the past, but it's 
it's bloody hard. We've done dung samples and we've been to a bloody sup, you know, that court, we've done a couple of few day, three day courses on that bloody stuff. And, um, and, and, and there are some, some waters here, and particularly more than others, where they'll go for lick, but they'll be on the same pipeline getting the same water in the similar country. And then one water, they'll gut a certain type of lick and you give them to the CF6Ks away, they'll just turn their nose up and won't even, won't even touch it. If you can um, find a scientist that tells me what the answer, what the answer to that is, we'll be good. But so the cattle we mustered yesterday, or the ones that you pass on the driveway, are they on any kind of lick? Not at the moment, no. Well, Jesus. they don't. They don't need it. So. Oh, well, no, probably, no, well, well, I shouldn't say they don't need it. They probably, they probably do. But as far as I'm concerned, if they're fat and happy, then what? Well, what's it's not really expense. Yeah. To have, yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. But going forward, especially with that two paddock rotation. Um, in, at times when they're probably going to have a lot of dry grass, especially you know, as it, as it as going forward when it gets really dry, they'll probably probably put them on a bit of lick. I'd say down going forward. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose like you're keeping an eye on it and you're aware and constantly monitoring it. And there's no point in doing something just for the sake of doing it no. or to be seen to be doing it or for a feel good. Yeah. It's a very expensive yeah. feel good. Yeah. Like why put it out there if it's a pretty if strong they don't country. I've got friends, mates up in the Kimberleys, and um, they get. Licking by the road train, I think def- definitely that country you need it because you, um, I know that they improves their carving percentages and all that sort of stuff. So it makes financial sense to do it. But in this country, um, a certain, I think when it dry, if you've got dry feed and, and you don't get any rain for a long time, you definitely need to feed them a bit of lick. But at right at this moment in time, there's this the feed still quality of the feed still very good. So yeah, no definitely point. saw plenty of green stuff in the ground yesterday. I was very surprised for this time of year. It's not warm. It's not really hot yet either. You know, the, the feed's still holding. It's still, still nice. It's not cardboard. Yeah. No, we're not up to chaff levels yet. <laughs> sure the horses wouldn't complain though. So the last section I've got for you is about people. So tell me a little bit about your staff here and how you run them and what your, I suppose, your ideas on, on running people after we've spoken about running cattle. Um, we we. We're only a small family place, so we don't really have full-time staff. We just get staff in when we're mustering, pretty much. Um, unless we've got projects on, like fencing or pipelines or something, we'll get a few troops in. But um, And we don't need many staff. Like We've only got three handy young girls working for us at the moment, um, and that's been enough so far. And you, you, In your bigger days, you get a, get a contractor in, come in on his, with, a, with a bike, come in, give you an extra hand. And also the last couple of years with the drought, we've, we've been trying to just keep everything to a minimum, yep. you know, managing just ourselves and the kids out there uh, as much as we can, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and being, being set up now like with permanent yards and everything, it's fencing, it's cattle, quiet cattle. Having quiet cattle is a big one. Don't need so many staff. Um, less accidents and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's – it's, I mean, it's, it's always more fun to have a few toey ones in it, but, I mean, you're always going to get the odd one, but it's um, – if you – yeah, like, you know, just, you, your cows will just – you can move them off of water and wander them down the road with just minimal staff. It's, it's good, yeah. What do you think is the key to keeping staff and keeping them happy while they are here? Like, you've got a pretty content, happy crew here, like my observation from the past few days, and – you know, I've known other people that have worked here over the years and it's not like this is a revolving door of people that walk away bitter and twisted or anything. Like, so... <laughs> Depends well, on who you are. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So, well, yeah, from your perspectives, having worked on other places or worked on family places and now being the bosses yourself, what do you find yourself doing to try and make their experience a good one? I guess, I guess um, from my own experience... You're just doing a like as long as you're learning something new, or, or or just have a good meaningful day's work, you know, not just and um, give them. I suppose a like, yeah, bugger, I don't really know how to answer that question, but you know, you just you, you you're trying to give them a bit of bit of freedom as well to make their own decisions a bit, I suppose. Um, I feel like just the- build 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 up good good morale. I suppose it's just good to have good morale, communicate with them. Yeah, not. Try not to be too much of a drill sergeant sort of thing, if you know what I mean. The pastoral industry in general sort of, I mean, especially for places like us, seems like a last frontier as far as an as initiative in some ways because because of what, exactly what Rory just said, you know, we're not, um, we can't be out there holding their hand and 
showing them exactly how to do it or telling them exactly how to do it. They're still going to figure a lot of it out for themselves. You give them a bit of a rundown and, you know, tell them how to be safe and stuff like that, and you'll probably be with them the first few times, and after that they've um, got to have a crack. Yeah. I feel like that's really important. That And that, and that we, we seem to end up with um, people like that that are gen, most of them genu- generally genuine and wanting to learn and have a go, get amongst it. So, I did lie. There's a few more questions before I let you go. What is the biggest challenge you face in your business? Rain. I'd love to get each yeah. of your uh, answers on this. I um, thought it was rain. Probably rain. Well, because we're only, yeah, you're probably right, Cricket. Um, we're only a small place, so um, when it's rain, when 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 it's raining every year, just it's 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 um. It's cheap to run the place, so if you're running, if you're stocked up, it's it's sweet, it's happy days. But when it when it's when it doesn't rain, it's when you really got to um, trim all your trim your budget and um, yeah, buddy. Just with the last probably few years, um, we've 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 still been in the black, still making money because the cattle prices have been so good. But have, have if we'd had this dry year with cattle prices like they were in 2012, 2013, would have been certainly would have been a struggle year for sure. And we've we've got cows away on a, on a place in the central sort of Pilbara where on adjustment, so that helps as well. If you could be boss for a day and bring something into this industry, like so, you're the ag minister, the prime minister, the king, whoever, and you could click your fingers and bring something in, like a rule, what would it be? Less red tapes, probably less bureaucracies. Straight away came to mind. I would Just like, yeah, I would like bureaucracy. more locked in assurances from our governments. Because it feels, especially as a West Australian beef producer, that our government doesn't uh, support or appreciate what we do out here and uh, they're so focused on the resource industry that we're just a little um, thing in the background. And I wonder what they'll – I mean, I know they want to – I'm getting a bit off course, but um, we're going to lose so much natural – beauty and natural habitat and we're out here just with it here now um you know we only have to look over our shoulder and see and we haven't hardly disturbed it but are we are we going to allow as a west australian beef producer is our government going to allow every bit of wa dirt to be turned over into a quarry so i would like to see i would like to see be more assured of protection from just becoming a mine Yeah, it's that's my the w- WA government. I mean, they've I mean, both the Liberal and Labor government have been haven't been friendly to the pastoral industry in the last probably decade. So it's it's um it's definitely a concern. Like, I mean, and there's stupid things like this this making branding and earmarking um, optional. I mean, that's just stupid. But by law, you're supposed to put a nils tag in there after eighteen months. You know, it's just ridiculous. Um, things like um, there's a the the, the the animal, the laws about animal welfare now are just are unpractical. Like you, um, you, you send you send an animal to the abattoir or sale yard, sale yard. I mean, you're not going to send anything that's that's physic, physically in hurt, sick, or in pain. But if a bull's got a busted pizzle or something, you know, you, you can't you can't send it, even though he's going to get his going to get turned into hamburgers. You know, it's just not um, a lot of common sense in those areas. Just it's, and it's, and going forward. Yeah, you because know, people in the city are so far, far removed from nature now, it's only going to get worse. What is a non-negotiable for you? Something you just won't budge on? Like um, as far as in industry yeah. goes? Yeah, or in, or in the business, the station life, whatever. For us here, I think um, good cattle handling. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important to both of us. There's, there's, it's amazing um, in the cattle industry how few people are that actually handle their animals properly. In my, I mean, there's lot. Everyone's got different ways of doing it, but it's, it's, it's good stockmen. I think um, the modern term for it is like low stress or no low stress stock handling. But I, I just like to call it good stock handling. And there's not. It's, it's sort of getting um, few and far between. And there's, it's just, it's, it is, it is. There are some people that. that have, I mean, it, it is. Oh, it's probably the wrong thing to say, but there are um, good things like there's the livestock handling cup, I suppose, and there's people that go around and um, 
push push this sort of stuff, which is which is probably good. But yeah, it's a lot of a lot of um, uh, stock handling. You see where where people either don't know or it's all about the dollars and cents. The actual animal good good animal animal welfare is not 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 a part of it. If you know what I mean. You've this year has been a great season, but you've had four or five years leading up to this of very challenging seasons. Effectively, you know, you've mm. been in drought. What was your strategy going into that for management, and how has that changed? And and how did that look? Um, I suppose initially it was just going into the drought, was pulling pulling weaners off and lightening off cow numbers, um, and then last year we got to the point where. We couldn't line our cow numbers off anymore, otherwise our business would be unviable. So um, that's when we found adjustment for 360-odd of our cows. Um, and then also, obviously, this defencing, rotating our cattle a lot more. So two-thirds of our place is in, um, in, in paddock rotations and the other third is in um, like a natural rainfall rotation, I suppose, with the, with the dams and stuff the way they are. So I think, um, and, and with, the, with our farms down south, I think, Going forward in the game of the next drought, hopefully there will be a while before we have another one, but we'll be in better place, I reckon. So when you just said you were lightening off your cattle numbers and uh, to the point where then there was a point where if you lightened off any more, it would become unviable. Yeah. How do you come to that number? Do you work with like a consultant or do you guys just have a lot oh, of like of your own book work? Just that you my own book work and gut feeling, budgets. What you yeah. need. Yeah. We also yeah, there wasn't any science behind it, but, but, but I suppose yeah, not. I think there yeah, is. You there just is. may not probably, probably recognize. Probably, yeah, probably. Yep. yep. You had those. You sent those heifers down. You know, with the plan to yeah. bring them back. You know, yeah. and there were several hundred of them. So that's you were sort of banking on. Did, yeah. You you where you, you utilized the farms yep. in that way as well, not just full young stock, but some heifers. Yep. So we had four hundred heifers down the farm last year. That we didn't sell, a bit, bit, and particularly 200 of them were heavy, and but that really nice heifers that we could have sold for a small fortune last year, but we didn't because we, we just took a gamble. Surely it's got to rain this year, and it did, so we brought them all home. Yeah. And it's going to be – I mean, some are starting to carve now because we put a bull with them down the farm, but we knew it would be – but trying to buy that sort of stock in would, would – so, yeah, it'd be for, feel for people who can't, you know, in a position where they have to buy stock in because it's the price of breeding stock at the moment is just outrageous. So as you're developing a destocking plan simultaneously, you're developing a restocking plan? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.